0: Well, on January 29th in 1982, uh, there was a man by the name of Stephen Callahan who was in a, a solo sailing race, and the, the goal of this race was to leave the Canary Islands, which is uh, just off the northwest coast of the continent of Africa, and his goal was to sail to the island of Antigua in the West Indies, and he was going to do this by himself in a boat that he had helped design and helped build. And so on January 29th, he leaves the Canary Islands and heads uh, due west, sailing for Antigua. The first few days of sailing, he said, were beautiful. The water was great. The wind was at his back. He was, he was making great time. And then all of a sudden, a few days in, the weather shifted, and he found himself battling a series of, of rather violent storms that were just buffeting uh, his vessel. And finally, several nights into this journey, his ship struck something. And whatever he hit, he later said he thought it was perhaps a collision with a whale, he said whatever he hit, hit hard enough that it breached the hull of his vessel, and his boat began to fill with ocean water. And so he had a plan in place, he inflated a, a six-person life raft that he had aboard the vessel, and he, he jumped on board that, but he stayed with his boat and tried to salvage what he could off of the vessel. Eventually, uh, his sailboat sank, and he was left alone to float in a six-person life raft. And now where once he could direct the course of his vessel in the direction he wanted to go, now he was left to simply drift. And Stephen Callahan drifted uh, into the North Equatorial Current, and which began to take him uh, west. But now he couldn't in any meaningful way direct the course of his vessel. He simply had to go wherever the current carried him. He floated in the life raft for 76 days. I mean, this is a long time to weather the elements and and the seawater and was finally rescued uh, not on the island of Antigua but off the island of Guadalupe, 100 miles south and east of his intended destination. So because he was at the mercy of the currents, he found himself not at his destination but in a place he never set out to go because his only option was to go wherever the current carried him because he was simply adrift in the wide ocean. So this morning, I want to talk about this idea of drift, because I think Steve Callahan's story uh, illustrates a couple really powerful things. That number one, if if we let ourselves simply drift, we get caught up in whatever the currents are around us. I think as believers, our temptation is to get caught up in the currents of culture and let culture just carry us somewhere. And this is what I would call spiritual drifting. When we drift spiritually, and I'm going to define that as a lack of intentional investment in our relationship with God, that results in a life off course. Spiritual drift is a lack of intentional connection or investment in our relationship with God that results in a life off course. Spiritual drift is this place in our lives where we, we stop being intentional about being spiritually healthy and we just sort of get complacent and lackadaisical and we let whatever the current's taking place in our lives around us just carry us forward. The problem is, is that when you just follow the current, it never leads to your intended destination. And so I think for some of us, as we've spiritually drifted, we get caught up in the, the, the current of culture and we let it carry us to a place and it results in a life that's off course from what God would have for us as his people. So this morning, I want to look at a series of questions. We've talked about what is spiritual drift. I want to talk a little bit about how spiritual drift happens, how do we recognize it, and then what steps can we take to get back to a place of spiritual health? Because one of the things that I've noticed about being healthy is that I never get healthy by simply drifting and being passive and unintentional in something. If if I want to be physically healthy, I can't just sit on my couch every day and eat ice cream and watch other people play sports on TV and hope that I'm going to be physically healthy. I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. If I want to be physically healthy, I have to actively engage and intentionally invest in being physically healthy. The same is true of relational health. I cannot uh, get married to my wife and then say, great, we're married. Uh, I'm just going to sit passively by. I don't don't think we need to, to talk. We can maybe schedule a meeting every now and then. That doesn't work. I can't just drift in my marriage and expect my wife to still even like me, right? Anything that's going to be healthy, whether it's physical, whether it's relational, has to be intentionally invested in. The same thing is true of our spiritual health. We can't just let ourselves drift spiritually and lacking unintentional and unintentionality. Is that a word? Unintentionality? Uh, And expect to be spiritually healthy. But I think for many of us, the temptation is to let ourselves drift spiritually. And and I think the way spiritual drift happens is it's kind of deceiving. I think spiritual drift is about a series of incremental compromises that we make over the course of time that lead to a place of spiritual complacency. For some of us, maybe there's a traumatic thing that causes someone to lose their faith. But I think frequently what happens, for those of us who have been in the church and maybe you've been in church for a while, is we sort of get comfortable and we start to make these, these small compromises at first. I'm really tired. I think I'm just, I'm going to hit snooze, uh, sleep through the time I would normally do my devotions. Not a big deal. And that stretches into a couple days, which stretches into weeks. Or, or maybe during the summer we say, you know what, I'm going I'm to skip a Sunday or two or three or four. And we start to make these incremental compromises. And we find ourselves over the course of time lacking intentionality in our spiritual growth and development. So I think the sneaky thing about spiritual drift is it's small incremental changes, often the compromises that we make that lead to a place of spiritual complacency. So what are some things that contribute to spiritual drift? I'm going to throw these up real quick and hit them. We'll talk about them more through the course of the, the message. Things that contribute to spiritual drift. I think things like distractions contribute to spiritual drift. And, and what I mean by that is I think in the United States of America, we experience a standard of living that, compared to a lot of other places, is, is opulent. And I think the, 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 uh, the, the standard of living that we experience creates the opportunity for numerous distractions that pull us away from being intentional spiritually. I mean, I think just about the, the things like technology. I, I love technology. I, I love having a smartphone, but there's times and places too when things like social media and a smartphone and uh, relentless access to the internet and hours of TV and we can watch whatever we want. Those are good things. They're not inherently evil, but those can become distractions that pull us away from being intentionally invested spiritually. And I know what it's like to come home after a long day, put the kids down, and they finally get to bed about eight or eight thirty, and I'm exhausted. All I want to do is sit on the couch and watch three hours of TV. But there's nothing about that that's intentional and leads to any sort of health, relationally, spiritually, physically. So I think sometimes we just simply let ourselves get caught up in good things that become distractions from our spiritual growth. I think sometimes we just get complacent. We get comfortable. We sort of, we say, oh, you know, I've been in the church a while, I kind of know stuff, and we just stop pushing ourselves to learn and to grow and to encounter afresh the presence of God. I think sometimes we let ourselves get self-reliant. I think we often get self-reliant in the places when life is good, things are going well, there's no sort of bumps, we feel like we, we've kind of got it together, and we say, you know what, I've, I've kind of got this. And when things are smooth sailing, we stop intentionally pushing into the presence of God. And we get sort of self-reliant and think, yeah, I can do this thing called life. And I think those places of self-reliance often lead to a place of spiritual drift where we lack intentionality. And finally, I think just busyness. I think our culture is just so incredibly frenetic and hectic and busy that we just get caught up in the pace of life, and suddenly our spiritual growth and development gets pushed to the fringes of our existence. And one of the things that I'm learning about having kids in life is that it just keeps getting faster. You know, I, you hear people say all the time, it just keeps going quicker. And I used to think that was just a thing that people say. You know, you don't know what else to say, so you say, yeah, time keeps speeding up. It's so true. Life is never going to slow down. I think the difference is sometimes we let busyness just sort of happen to us and we let the pace of life dictate to us how we live. If we're going to be spiritually invested and intentional, part of what it means is we start giving direction to how we spend and invest our time, letting our spiritual growth be a top priority in the midst of that. But I think those four things, and this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but I think these are some things that contribute to this place of spiritual drift. And I think over and over again, we see this, this uh, idea of spiritual drift play out uh, in the people of Israel. As you read the Old Testament and you listen to the narrative that unfolds there, you see that time and time and again, the people of Israel get caught up in this cycle of spiritual drift. So I've got an illustration that I want to put up on the screen here that I think uh, helps make sense of, of how the nation of Israel often found themselves in a place of spiritual drift. So if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that there are times and places when the nation of Israel encounters a season of peace. And often what happens is that in the midst of that place of peace and God's blessing, they allow themselves to get complacent. And they they sort of get self-reliant in this place. Like, okay, we're in the promised land, things are going good, I think we've got this all figured out, and they get complacent, which usually, for the nation of Israel, leads to a place of disobedience and sin. A place where they kind of go, okay, we've got this, I think we can, we can do this our own way. And that, that place of sin often leads to consequences of pain and brokenness. It leads them to a place uh, essentially where they go, how did we get here? God, we're, we're in the promised land, and like we're going to read today in the story of Judges, suddenly the nation of Israel, they find themselves oppressed by a foreign invader because they got complacent, they became disobedient, which led to a place of pain and brokenness. But what I think is fascinating is that time and time again, the nation of Israel will cry out to God, and God brings them a judge and a deliverer who leads them back to a place of peace. And we watch this cycle play out in the history of Israel. I want to give you two examples where this plays out. The first one is in Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah 2 says this. I'll read it real quick for you. It says, this is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find with me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols, and they became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where's the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through barren wilderness through a land of deserts and ravines? Right, so that's, that's the story of the Exodus. God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He led them through the desert wilderness, and catch this. It says, you brought us into a fertile land to eat its fruits and rich produce. This is their entry into the promised land. They're experiencing that place of peace. But listen to what happens it says, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law don't even know me. The leaders rebelled against me. Right? This is the cycle that we just talked about, the cycle of spiritual drift playing out right in uh, the history of the people of Israel. They were in captivity in Egypt. They cry out to God. God leads them to a place of peace and abundance. And in the midst of that place of abundance and peace, they find themselves getting complacent to this place where even the priests aren't asking about God's presence. The people who are in charge of the law, they don't even know God. And the nation of Israel in this place of of being unintentional with their spiritual growth, they find themselves drifting to this place that they never expected they would be. Because that's the hard part about drifting is that you can never drift unintentionally and arrive at the destination that you want to get to. So here's, I think, the question for us is how do we begin to recognize when we're spiritually drifting? And so I want to walk through what I think are some symptoms of spiritual drift. And we're going to walk through this using the example of the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 5. Now, as you open up to the story of Gideon, excuse me, in Judges chapter 6, you should notice the end of Judges chapter 5. At the end of that chapter, it says this. It says, then the land had peace for 40 years. So prior to Gideon being a leader in the nation of Israel, a leader by the name of Deborah, this woman who was a fantastic leader, led Israel back to a place of pursuing an intentional relationship with God. And under her leadership, Israel experiences 40 years of peace. But notice what happens when we pick up in Judges chapter 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's that cycle from peace, complacency, now they're back to a place of disobeying God and living in sin. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves and mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land, and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you, and I gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, That belonged to Joash the Abezerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to uh, to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and has given us into the hand of Midian the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. I think the story of Gideon illustrates uh, the cycle that we just talked about. They experience peace, they find themselves getting complacent, which leads to a place where the nation of Israel again does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And now they find themselves, because they have disobeyed God's plan and purpose for them, they find themselves in the midst of this pain and brokenness. And they begin to cry out to God in the midst of their spiritual drift, asking for God to rescue them. And so I want to look at the story of Gideon as we look at what are some things that are symptomatic of spiritual drift, Because I think one of the first things to moving back towards health is recognizing when we're spiritually drifting, when we're not being intentional, what are the symptoms there, and then how do we move towards health? So the first symptom, I think, of spiritual drift is is a disposition of disobedience, a disposition of disobedience. So here's how it played out for Gideon. Notice verse 10. There, God says, I am the Lord your God, and I told you, do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, Look at this last sentence, but you have not listened to me. So God spoke clearly to the people of Israel and he said, listen, I'm going to lead you into Canaan. I'm going to give you the promised land, but as you take it, be very careful to live as I have called you to live. God gave the nation of Israel his word about how to live and function in a way that is good and right and in line with God, God's character. Just like we have the word of God for us that describes how to live as the people of God. The only problem is that the nation of Israel decided we're not going to listen to the voice of God. We're going to do things in our own way. And I think part of what happens here is this disposition of disobedience. As it develops, it leads to sort of a place of apathy about the things of God. They don't really care about the voice and the presence of God. They're not even being intentional to seek after him. In fact, as you keep reading, we find out that they have built altars and shrines to all these other false gods. Now, I think sometimes a disposition of disobedience maybe looks less extreme for us. Sometimes it looks like God is calling us or convicting us about something or to take action in something, and we kind of go, well, God, but that's that's not convenient. And we sort of brush aside God's calling and conviction, and we decide we're not going to step in obediently into what God is calling us. I think uh, the second symptom of spiritual drift is an attitude of distrust towards God. Notice what happens in verses 12 and 13. The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, and he says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I think Gideon's response is kind of funny. He goes, uh, Pardon me, my Lord? This is, uh, Gideon is saying, uh, Excuse me? I imagine Gideon looking behind him going, You said mighty warrior, but I'm, Oh, you're talking to me. I mean, this is kind of the sense that you get in the text, that the, the angel of the Lord says, mighty warrior, God is with you. And Gideon goes, excuse me, excuse me. Um, first of all, I'm not a mighty warrior. Second of all, he says, I don't know if you've looked around us, uh, but I don't think God is present with us. And listen to what Gideon says in verse 13. He says, uh, if the Lord is with us, why has, Midian, why has all this happened to us? Where are the wonders of God that our ancestors spoke about? Didn't God bring us up out of Egypt? But now he's abandoned us. And so there's this growing disposition of distrust that Gideon doesn't think that God is present and he doesn't think that God will in fact move. And I think what happens is when this disposition or this attitude of distrust grows, it leads to a place of despair that we think that place of pain and brokenness that we find ourselves in, we think is hopeless and that God can't move in the midst of our circumstances, And I think as we drift spiritually and as we find ourselves in this place of this hopeless attitude, we kind of give up on faith. Well, God can't move. God won't move. I think the third symptom is is we forget our past. And, And I think you see this all throughout this story here. That when the people cry out, one of the things that God reminds them of is in verse 8, the prophet says, I, I, uh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. And when the prophet comes to the nation of Israel, he begins reminding them of their history. And the beautiful thing, when we are mindful of how God has worked in our lives in the past, when we remember his provision, what it does is it gives perspective to the present and it gives a hope for the future. This is why when you read the Old Testament, there's so much in the Old Testament about remembering your past and remembering God's past provision in your life. Remember when God has shown himself faithful. Uh, Two more real quick. Wrong worship and priorities. The nation nation of Israel has abandoned serving God, and they've built altars to these false gods. Now, I, I doubt any of us have a literal altar to a false god in our house. But I think there are times and places when we let other things creep in that we give more time and energy and attention to, that we give more uh, affirmation and praise and adoration to. Sometimes we put so much stock in in, uh, material success, in getting the right job and the right promotion at work, that we sort of start to worship our vocation in a way that can be unhealthy. And as soon as our priorities begin to shift and we begin to worship the wrong things, it's a symptom of spiritual drift. And finally, a life and a heart that, uh, a life that does not reflect the heart of God. I think for me, a big indication of spiritual drift is if the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, if that fruit is not seen in our lives, if our life doesn't reflect the love, the grace, and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, something is fundamentally broken. If I find myself responding harshly to people and not with the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, something is fundamentally off. Because over and over again throughout the Old Testament, the idea of salvation is not just that we're freed from our sins, but it's that we actually reflect the image and the character of who God is. Like where Paul says we are being renewed in knowledge and the image of our creator. We should reflect the heart and the character of God. And and I think one of the hard things about spiritual drift, so if we were to summarize this, is that it often looks like a life that's driven by fear as we distrust God, as we begin to think God can't come through in our circumstances, this leads us to a place, I think, of being driven by fear. And we see this in the nation of Israel. In verse 2, it tells us that the Israelites are hiding in shelters and caves and strongholds. In fear, they're hiding away, afraid of the hand of Midian. This is not how God called the people of Israel to live. He wanted them to live prosperously and abundantly in, in the promised land. His vision for them is not that they're hiding away in caves afraid that Midian will come and overtake them. So here's the question for us is how do we begin to move towards spiritual health? I I think there's a few ways that we see in the story and the example of of Gideon and the nation of Israel that we begin to move towards spiritual health. I think the first one is repentance. In verse 6, notice that it says this. It says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, the nation of Israel has been pursuing and worshiping all of these other false gods. In a sense, they've been placing their, their sense of, of, of well-being in the ability of these false gods to provide for them. But as they've trusted these false gods, they found that Midian actually conquered them and is impoverishing them. And so when it says that they cried out to God, this is a major turning point in the text. The nation of Israel is now turning and reorienting their lives back towards God, and they cry out to him, inviting God's presence. The idea of repentance, the Hebrew word is teshuva, and it literally means to turn or to return. It's not just being sorry for what we've done. It's reorienting our life in a new direction, pursuing God intentionally. And I think with this, several things flow out of this. Uh, The second one is that they renew their worship of God. They're intentional to come back to a place of, of, of bowing before God, of worshiping him. And part of worship in ancient Israel was remembering their past when God had shown himself faithful and provided for them. The other thing that they do is they begin to remove ungodly influences. If you were to continue reading in chapter 6, you would find that in verse 26 and 27, God says this. He says, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord. And Gideon follows through and does that. And so as we repent, as we renew our our worship of God, there are ungodly influences that we have to be intentional to remove from our lives. So what are those things, those ungodly influences in your life that are causing you to drift spiritually? Maybe it's an unhealthy relationship. Maybe it's an addiction. I, I don't know. What is that thing in your life that God is calling you and convicting you, saying this thing has got to be removed? I think the next symptom is, or the next uh, move towards spiritual health is to receive God's grace and empowering. To cry out to God like the Israelites did. And notice what happens in in verse 14. That when God goes to Gideon and says, I want you to go, I'm sending you, save save Israel. Gideon says, "I I can't do this. He says, my clan is the weakest and I'm the least in my family. But notice what God says in verse 16. He says, I will be with you. He's not calling Gideon to go and to do this thing by himself. God is saying, Gideon, I'm going to empower you to do the things that I've called you to do. So as you reorient your life back to God, as you cry out to him, we receive God's grace and empowering in and through the Holy Spirit to live the life that he's called us to live. Finally, uh, remember your past. Stop and take time to celebrate the provision of God in your life in times past. And finally, respond with diligent obedience. As God calls you, as God convicts you, as God invites you to step into a spiritual journey that's intentional, respond with diligent obedience. And, and here's why I think this matters. I think we have to ask this question why is all this important? I think one of the, the biggest lies that we have believed and that culture likes to perpetuate is that our faith is something that's only personal and individual. You know, sometimes we hear people on TV as they're asked about their faith, they say, well, you know, that's a really personal matter. And I think what happens is we think, I can drift spiritually, I don't have to be intentional in my spiritual development, and it only affects myself. I don't think that's true of all, at all. I think when we drift spiritually, it has a dramatic impact on the lives and the people around us. It has a dramatic impact on the sphere of influence that God has entrusted you to steward. And so I think this matters because God wants to use us to make a spiritual impact on the lives of people around us. What I think is so fascinating is that God uses someone like Gideon, who's a normal person. Gideon says, I'm from the, the weakest clan, and, and I'm the weakest in my family. Gideon is an ordinary person, but God says, Gideon, I want to use you, an ordinary man, to break the cycle of spiritual complacency in the nation of Israel as a whole. And listen, I think God wants to use you and I, normal, everyday people, to break the cycle of spiritual complacency in our families and in our workplaces and in our communities. Because I think holistically we've grown fairly complacent as a a, a culture about our spiritual direction. And I I think it begins to, to change and to be shifted as normal people like you and I engage intentionally in our spiritual growth, opening up our lives to the empowering of God's Spirit the God will use people like us to break the cycle of spiritual complacency and the spheres of influence that God has asked you to steward. Um, on the, the second page of your note guide, I know it was kind of an intimidating note guide, right? The double double pager. Some of you are probably nervous that it was going to be a fifty-five minute message. There's still time, so we still got fifty-five minutes or 30, twenty-five minutes to go. I'm just kidding. It's not going to be fifty-five minutes. You can breathe a sigh of relief. But when you look at that, on on the inside page of that, there's a list of about 12 things that I call indicators of spiritual health. And this is not an exhaustive list of everything that spiritual health looks like, but I think it's a beginning. And at the end of this service, I, I want us to think about a couple key things. I want you to ask this hard question, how is it with my soul? How is my spiritual well-being? Do I find myself excited about encountering the living God? Do I find myself uh, overjoyed at the thought of being gathered in worship? Do I find myself being filled spiritually? Or are you in a place where spiritually you would say, you know, I'm, I'm kind of drifting. I'm kind of going wherever the current takes me. I haven't been intentional to invest in my spiritual development. How is it with your soul? The second question I want you to ask is, uh, will you be a cycle breaker? Will you be someone who says, God, I don't want to just drift through this. God, I want to intentionally invest my life in you. I want to renew my worship of you. I want to cry out to you. I want to be someone who begins to break the cycle of spiritual complacency in my family, among my friends, in my place of work. And I think as you look at those indicators of spiritual health, I think when we live spiritually healthy, if I would summarize what that looks like, I think it's a life driven by faith. It trusts that even in the midst of crazy circumstances, even when we've drifted and grown complacent, that we can have faith that if we cry out to God, he will meet us there. So how was it with your soul this morning? How are you doing spiritually? Will you be someone like a Gideon, a normal person that God can use to break the cycle of spiritual drift and complacency? In your sphere of influence this morning as we think about this and as we respond to this we're going to take communion this morning and, and communion is is in part a moment of remembering God's saving history in our lives we remember this moment when when Jesus gave his life shed his blood dying the death that was meant for us but it's more than a moment of remembrance as we take communion we encounter and we receive the grace and the empowering of God to live the life that he has called us to And so this morning, as we reflect on those questions, how is it with your soul? And will you be a cycle breaker? I want you to, in this moment of communion, just come before God. Use this as a place to cry out to him. If you've been spiritually drifting, just kind of going through the motions, not intentionally investing, and you go, whoa, I'm way off course. Let this be a moment where you say, God, I need your grace in my life. And trust that God will not abandon you like Gideon had feared. That God is there and he will respond grace